Well, good morning. It's great to have you all here. Uh, if you're new or visiting and you don't know yet who I am, my name is Dave. I'm our lead pastor here. And we're just wrapping up our TechWise series today. You know, as, as a musician, I've had the, the pleasure of playing with lots of very capable musicians over the years. But let me tell you, one of the greatest joys is when you get to play with a drummer who has um, not only kind of like a sensitivity to the music, to the dynamics of the song, as well as that sense of feel, um, but who have just a solid meter, who like keep you on tempo. Um, nothing keeps a song intact, like a drummer who knows how to sit in the pocket of a groove. Uh, but timing, rhythm, um, that sort of groove that's not just significant in music. See, your life was built for a rhythm as well. Um, we live in an age of the instant, where technologies have been moving from being a useful tool that we could access as needed to being uh, what Andy Crouch in his book TechWise calls everywhere all the time. That's kind of the new reality we live in. Like, remember when the phone or the TV um, or the computer was attached to a wall? Wasn't that a weird time? Like, you'd have to, you'd have to go to the phone or you'd have to be home to receive a call, or you would you know, have to turn on a TV that was in a, in a room somewhere. So it's just a totally different world that we live in. If you have juice still in your phone, chances are you are connected everywhere all the time. And for all of the advantages of this kind of access, and there are many, there are challenges as well. In Alan Noble's really excellent book, highly recommend, it's called Disruptive Witness. Um, he describes the challenge of living in a highly mediated world, a world where it's mediated by kind of screens and, what, and, and how we uh, kind of imagine our interactions happening through sort of that mediation. Here's what he writes. He says, for example, when you go for a walk in the woods alone, we're never truly going for a walk in the woods alone. Our experience of nature is filtered through the Instagram pictures we take and our awareness of how our friends will experience these pictures and how they will think about us in light of those pictures. Or we might mediate the walk through an awareness of global warming and its effects on the environment. However we conceive of the walk, it never is simply a walk in the woods. Of course, to some extent, this has always been our human experience. We've always experienced life as an interconnected web, but with the tremendous growth of technology and the media, of life as public performance, our ability to resist mediation has declined. In our world, we have to fight harder to experience the present shorn of stullifying mediation. Now, do you, do you see what he's saying here? He's saying we have to work harder and fight harder <laughs> to experience the present, like what's happening right in front of us in the moment without it being flattened out or cheapened by mediation. And we do have to fight harder. Um, in the first message of this series, I made the point that technology in and of itself isn't the problem. Although I would just add the small caveat that many of the apps that you enjoy um, their designers have designed those in such a way that they would be addictive. So we have to be aware of that as well. But the technology in and of itself is not the main issue. It can be a good thing that needs to be kept in its proper place. The challenge, of course, is knowing what is that proper place and then having the wisdom and the courage as well as the perspective and the heart posture 
And as we'll find out today, the self-control to keep it in its place. So let's pray as we begin. Holy God, you have made us for yourself. And you have called us to be holy just as you are holy, to be set apart for your good purposes. And so we ask that we might experience you today. We open ourselves to all that your word teaches, and we just pray that you'd be forming and shaping us to be your people. Amen. So God created the world to have this rhythm to it, daily, weekly, monthly, yearly. In the world that he created, we were created to be in sync with that rhythm. We find out in Genesis chapter 1 that there are boundary markers that God puts in place around space and time. In the creation story of Genesis 1, God does this work of separating, uh, separating out time, separating out spaces. We read this in 1.4, God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. So there's an example of just a daily rhythm that is built into the cosmos. But as we see in the story of God, that rhythm is ruptured. It's marred by the human decision to do life to our own tune. It's out of sync with God's ways. The good news, and we'll celebrate this throughout this message, is that God has not left humanity his, or his good world in the dark about his love or cut off from his light. God himself, Jesus, God the Son, enters the creation he created to recreate and bring our hearts back in sync with God's. To do it, Jesus dies the death that deals death, the death blow. And he rises again to bring us to new life, to conquer death itself. So when we trust in Jesus as our saving king, we're restored to life in his new creation patterns. And and so we're going to listen to what that means for us today. And to do so, we're going to start with the Apostle Paul. He was a a person that God had sent to share this good news with, with the world around the Mediterranean. And he writes to this young church in Ephesus. It's in present-day Turkey. And, and after he's described how grace, like God's free gifts uh, that comes to us when we trust in Jesus, after he describes that, he speaks of a whole new pattern of life. So listen to Ephesians 5. I'm going to begin at verse 8. He says this, For you were once darkness... But now you are light in the Lord. We just need to pause for a second. Those are massive statements. We might not want to believe that we were so lost that we could be described just as darkness. But Paul seems to say it without flinching. He seems to know that it's true, not just generally, but of himself as well. But that also reveals It reveals how good the good news is. He says, but now, like through your trust in Jesus' finished work on the cross, through his resurrection, that resurrection power in you, but now you are light in the Lord. Those who have given their yes to Jesus, and we celebrated that with a baptism this morning. Young lady Sharon Preet gave her life to Jesus and experienced a transformation in her heart where she was Those who have given yes to Jesus, we find out, this is true of you. You are light. But notice, it's not in yourself. This isn't an inner light that you tapped into. No, you are light in the Lord. What flows out of that? It's just this. It's be 
who you are. You are light in the Lord, so what? This is what he says next. So live as children of the light. For the fruit of life consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that's illuminated becomes light. This is why it's said, wake up, sleep, or rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I love that. Wake up. Like you are, it's, it's like you're asleep and you need to be shaken out of that stupor where that keeps you from real life. And it says Christ will shine on you like this, this beam of light that comes onto you in your life because you're about his business now. There's a new day and a new source of energy in you. But what quite does that mean? Well, Paul gets specific next. He says this in verse 15, be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. That's the theme of our whole series, isn't it? It's on the wisdom of God, not as the unwise, but wise. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, time, you notice that feature there. Time is arguably our most valuable resource. And Paul says in, in verse 16, live as wise, not as unwise, and that means to make the most of every opportunity, or, or more, I, I was just reading this through in the Greek text this week, and it's more literally, you put it like redeem the time, to buy it back from purposes that were wasteful to purposes that are beautiful. Buy it back, buy back that time. Perceive what's important, and then put your focus there. So see, the God who redeems us enables us now to redeem that rhythm of life. Um, a guy named Calvin Seerveld he describes this condition of kind of being out of, out of sync and out of time with God's rhythm. And he writes this way back in 1980, which is a great year to be born in, by the way. Um, As human time is geared to machine time, to save time, to give us leisure, the pace of human life becomes inhuman. There's less and less slack time because the machines go so fast, conveyor belt, elevator, telephone, taxi, vacuum cleaner, printing press, they begin to set the overall tempo in a kind of lickety-split, clickety-click kind of time, machine time for our lives. And if there should perchance be an instant break somewhere, an enterprising fellow is certain to fill it with something for someone to consume coin-operated candy machine, billboard, jukebox, transistor radio. And then Alan Noble replies so well, I think. He says, oh, for the days when we only had to worry about enterprising fellows filling our time with candy machines and transistor radios. I'm sure Calvin Searfield couldn't have imagined the world we live in now nearly 40 years later. So what do we do? Well, again, Alan Noble, he's uh, perceptive. He says this, a practical, achievable step we can take toward reclaiming our attention And creating some space for reflection is to cut down on filler distraction. Make dinner without listening to to a podcast. Use the bathroom without bringing your phone. (laughs) 
walk upstairs without checking Twitter, Alan. Stop seeing unproductive time as a problem to be solved and instead open yourself up to the possibility of undirected thought. Now, Alan had noticed these places in his life, these holes of quiet, and he would fill them with more noise. Now, he's not saying, like, don't listen to a podcast while you do the dishes. Um, The point is this, are you filling in all of the slack time? Do, Do you let slack time just be there to be slow, to be quiet, to be undistracted? I think those are things we're thinking through. See, we make the tough choice to live not in unchecked distraction, but with intentionality about how we use our time, we can begin just to like go for a walk and see the glory of God in creation anew. Yes, to see the world undistracted, uh, to just process experiences. I think sometimes we're so, you know, we'll have an experience of some sort, whether that's on vacation or in some way, but because of the filler distraction, there's little room for reflection for taking it in, for like thinking about that experience. We'll have time to reflect on our sin, but then consider the cross of Jesus and his redeeming love, and then to be grateful. You know, Paul's words in this text are so incredibly relevant for our moment. Be very careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. And notice how, again, make the most of every opportunity. Wisdom, Paul says, is about timing. Rhythm is a big part of it. So let's key in on that for a bit. Uh, This past week, I was pretty sick. I mean, it was just a cold, but it was a man cold. So, right, like I, it was horrid. I almost died. Um, I'm going to take this moment to wipe my nose right now. And no, I'm not serving communion. I've got someone else to do that, so I don't make you all sick. This past week, I was sick, and it was unpleasant. And so like usual, I would just make up that classic mix of like lemon and honey. And then I was doing my research on the book of Proverbs and I find out even in the ancient world, they believed and they knew that wild honey especially had like really helpful properties in it. Like it was, it was good medicine as well as a delicious source of food. Um, so Proverbs 25, 16 begins like this. If you find honey... Like finding wild honey, that is a score. You have found something beautiful. It's good for medicine. It's good food. But the Proverbs writer you see is talking about a good thing here, but there's more. If you find honey, awesome, just eat enough. Or eat just enough, pardon me. Not too much of it or you will vomit. Okay, so we, we, we all know this. The right amount of a good thing is good, but too much of a good thing and it no longer is. Uh, my grandpa Earl Fields he often talked about moderation as this wise virtue. And I don't know if he saw something in me that he thought, I need to keep sharing this with this kid. Um, Perhaps that was it, but he lived that out. This is important to notice though. A more literal, literal translation reads, eat only enough for you. To say for you, this, this speaks to how each person actually needs to know their own self, their own body, And the limits of how much of a good thing is still good and at what point it isn't anymore. And it might be different for you than it is for me. See, moderation isn't a one-size-fits-all sort of thing. Wisdom includes that God-given ability to discern, to perceive the difference between what's like okay and what's good and actually what's best. And then with God's help to consistently live out the best. 
One scholar says it like this, overindulgence transformed the sweet and healing honey into repulsive and sickening food. Now, what's that kind of eating called? It's called binging. And now, have you ever paid attention to the language we use around media use? Binge watching. Like, just keep hitting the next episode, next episode button on Netflix. Or for those, perhaps, of another generation, having one's preferred and often echo chamber-like news channel on all the time. Uh, Binging on media is not unlike binging on honey in the ancient world. Overindulgence transforms, and list whatever that good thing is right there. A Netflix show, Instagram, Facebook, the news channel you love, information, even, I dare I say, online sermons could transform those into a repulsive and sickening waste of time or mental energy or attention. You just thought, did he just say sermons? Like, isn't he a preacher? Doesn't he think that's like a good thing? Yes, but like any good thing, when that good thing overwhelms our lives, it becomes our God thing. And if it's not actually God, that's a problem. I've watched people spiral into like theological issues in online sermon land to the point when they begin neglecting their families, neglecting meeting with a friend who needs their love, neglecting meeting in worship in community, neglecting prayer, neglecting connecting with their neighbor who needs to know about the love of Jesus, a life that's cut off from embodiment and practice. And I say that because I've been distracted too. Paul says, wise living is making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. So here's my question. How can we kick against the darkness if we always have our earbuds in and our faces glued to a screen? Now, this theme of moderation, it's connected to its partner of self-control at the end of Proverbs chapter 25. Listen to this, verse 28. Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. Now, in the ancient world, the city walls is what kept the people inside safe from invasion, safe from being conquered. A person who lacks self-control, be it in terms of eating too much honey or honey nut Cheerios or any good thing taken too far, a person who lacks self-control opens up their life to outside influence. And so what hope is there for this person? Again, Waltke is instructive. He says, the unbridled person is defeated like before the contest, because your life is so open, wide open to anything, like you're not even going to get started into a life that's healthy and whole and as God intends it, if you're just wide open, if you have no self-control. Contest is over before it starts. But what does he say? He says his salvation is to embrace the Lord and his wisdom immediately for his defense and for victory. Wisdom, which is a divine grace attained by faith, Not native power, meaning it's not this kind of like so-called inner strength. No, grace from God fortifies the inner self and so safeguards its possessor. For Christians, the fruit of the Spirit yields self-control. Self-control is the ability to manage our impulses, to keep in check the pull of our heart in an unhealthy or unproductive or even destructive pattern of life. And that's something God, the Holy Spirit, produces in those who belong to him. So so this moderation, it goes hand in hand with self-control. Both are necessary for a life of wisdom. 
for adopting and living out that redeeming the time kind of life that God wants for us. So how do we get back into the groove? Um, Getting our lives in time with and in that rhythm of grace, it will require us uh, tapping into God's grace to make wise choices. Um, Being here, just present in worship, this is one of those like built into the rhythm of creation things. And so it's a beautiful thing. We got to sing together, to make music in our hearts. That's what Paul talked about right in the scripture. That meeting together like this, listening to what the scriptures say helps put us back in time. But more. I've been so encouraged to hear how people and families have been practicing what we've talked about over this five-week series. Um, In part one, I suggested that, you know, if you're used to reading your Bible on your phone, I mean, don't stop reading the Bible. I'm not trying to suggest that. But my, my, my suggestion was this. Maybe put away your phone and grab like a text, old school, like paper Bible and a notebook and leave the distraction device off. I've actually been turning my phone just like off for a whole hour to help me pray. And I've experienced just way more focus in that. In fact, I have a a pastor friend who's from a different church. I met with him for lunch last week and he's been watching our series as well. And he said, Dave, that was really helpful when you suggested the real physical Bible. Because when I sermon prep, I'm in my office, I got my Bible open. It's great. But in my personal life, I'm, you know, I'm using my phone and I'm noticing I really am distracted. So my wife and I, we just made this, we just put away our phones and opened up our Bibles and it's been really rich. I love hearing that. How about you? Have you been finding a way to, to just incorporate maybe less distraction in your time with God? I encourage you to do that if you haven't made that a practice yet. Uh, another friend mentioned the same point about her physical Bible. She just realized, she's like, my kids don't know if I'm reading the Bible or checking Facebook if I'm reading it on my phone. Like they have no idea what I do with my time. And so if they never see me reading my Bible at home, they'll have no idea that I love to hear from God in this way. So she's changed her habit, um, not like just to be seen. That's not the point. The point is she is reading her Bible, but her kids don't even know it. And your kids, if you're a parent, they catch what you love. You don't just teach faith. They just catch on. They can see mom and dad love Jesus. They love listening to the word of God. And I can tell because that's what they're doing right now. Uh, Open your Bibles. Let your kids see you reading them. I love that. Parents, do you love listening to God? Let your, parent, let your kids see that. I think that's a good thing. Um, so one of those practices is simply to read a physical Bible in your quiet time. Uh, another friend of mine, just in order to create more space, more undistracted, like less screen time in their home, he said he went home after that first message and he put out some jars and he put five coins in each jar And that represented one hour of screen time. And he put five in there. That was for the week for his kids. So they could, they could spend their money when they wanted to, their sort of media money. And he said it was a great way to be like, if you're going to lose a coin, if you keep doing that. So it was was great leverage um, for parenting at some points as well uh, and discipline. But the funny thing was, um, he put out five jars and his wife is like, whoa, whoa, wait, is this for us too? He's like, yes. And what, but what wisdom and courage and self-control? That's a great idea. Now, moderation might mean the number of coins in your jar is different. Not that you have to use a jar, but the point is this. Find ways, if you're a parent, maybe to say, how do we, how do we put good boundaries around when screens are on in our home? 
Uh, and it's not easy. Uh, the same family told me about how they, they pulled out their Bibles to put like on the kitchen table to use them for reading, which is awesome. But um, my friend came in, into the kitchen and he saw his one and a half year old daughter eating breakfast, watching um, a show on a tablet propped up against the two Bibles. <laughs> so uh, he just had to laugh. And he said, you know, we're, we're making, <laughs> I mentioned that because putting good boundaries in place around tech, that's not a law. It, that's fine. It's, it's wonderful. In fact, if you have little children and they're up at 5 a.m., and you just need another hour of sleep, well, maybe Paw Patrol will be on in your, be a bigger part of your life than you ever hoped it would be, and let's pray that it's a short season, because that song drives me nuts. Um, We're fumbling forward, okay? That's why I'm trying to give you examples of how people are living this, but we're doing it together. In our series, we also looked at the reality that we're created for connection, but that in in a digital and distracted age, our devices which promise connection, actually, all of the research shows this, have the opposite effect. They leave people more lonely than ever. So I suggested eating together, like just devices away for an hour in your home, just eating in community with family, with friends, with your housemates, uh, with your neighbors. One of the key issues with having a device-free dinner is it gives enough room for real conversation. In her book, Reclaiming Conversation, author uh, Sherry Turkle points out that it takes a conversation usually seven minutes before it starts, before it actually begins. Up to that point, we are relying on our regular repertoire of topics. How are the Blazers doing? What's the weather like? Minimal, predictable chit-chat. But around the seven-minute mark is usually where someone decides to take a risk, to ask a question, to make an observation, to express an emotion that they're not used to sharing out loud. Crouch, Andy Crouch summarizes well. He says, all true conversations really are risks, exercises in improvisation, where we listen and respond without knowing fully what is coming next, even out of our own mouths. So the challenge with our omnipresent devices is that the uncomfortable, the risky, that moment where we could go deeper into conversation and build connection with somebody, If you've got a device in front of you, that moment of vulnerability can be an easy out. It's like a safety blanket. Yeah, all you have to do is pull out your phone and check it, and what that conversation was going to become, you'll never know what it was going to become because it just got interrupted again. This is why a device-free meal matters so much. True connection over conversation. When I go for coffee or lunch with somebody for uh, a while now, it's been my practice to put my phone on Do Not Disturb and put it in my pocket. It's not on the table couple reasons. Number one, um, it communicates to the person that I'm talking with that you are more important than what might happen on my phone next. Um, It's saying this is a sacred space and time, and I want to give you my full attention. But the second thing it communicates is, well, the second thing it does is this. If I start feeling that risk or vulnerability, I don't have a, a safety blanket just to check something, be like, oh, pardon me. It forces me to actually go to that deeper place with someone else. No safety blanket. As our society also relies more and more on our vehicles to sort of get us from point A to point B to sports activities, we have a real opportunity to break that seven-minute barrier with our relationships. Often our dinner dinner time even flows into car time nowadays. Um, So Andy Crouch, he puts this commitment like this. I want to share it with you. It's just car time is conversation time. One of the things I remember most from our car rides places as kids 
is, I mean, yeah, of course, we would sing along with our favorite cassette tapes, which were great. Um, We would enjoy the beauty of the world around us because we weren't looking at something else in front of us. But we would also talk on your car rides, even commutes to different places. We would have these moments of conversation. My oldest son, Connor, he's eight years old. I was driving him to a hockey practice, and he's asking me about what party I would vote for and, like, the issues that were on the table and, like, how do you balance, like, climate change and and the economy? And I'd explain what economy meant to him. But it was a great opportunity to talk about the Christian values around stewardship of the earth and finances, right? Another commitment that I found helpful personally is this one. We wake up before our phones and we put them to bed before we go to bed. I've noticed I have the propensity, if I wake up in the morning and the house is kind of quiet, that I'll just like check my email or check my Facebook feed out of habit or boredom. I'm not really sure. But I've noticed that I am losing some of the most significant opportunities to just connect with God. Um, Paul says in our chapter, and being thankful always, or giving thanks always to God the Father through Jesus Christ. And I want my always to include like first thing in the morning when I wake up. I just want that time for prayer. And before I go to bed, the same thing. I want to fall asleep with, with Christ on my lips and in my heart and, and on my mind. So I've been making a practice of just not turning on my phone for the first hour that I'm awake. So I wake up before my phone does. And I've noticed a few things. Um, one is if I check my email, like first thing in the morning, I begin to formulate responses to questions that people are asking, or I begin to think about my calendar of what's coming up in the day and how I'm going to deal with those uh, various events or whatever it happens to be. And I notice that my mind is a mile away from my kids at the breakfast table or my wife who's right there in front of me. So for those who are married as well, we will miss some of the most significant times of connection and intimacy with our primary relationship if we're distracted by our phones right before bed. So I think it wise. Again, it's not a law, but if you want to live wise, maybe turn off your phone half an hour or an hour before you go to bed and let that be a place. um, I've noticed a difference in my life in this. Now, as we wrap up this series and this sermon, there's just one other piece that I think helps to pull this all together. I want us to go back to the idea of the meal, the table. Technology can actually be one way to communicate uh, the good news of Jesus to the world around us, but, and I think this is a key point, we may be tempted to overemphasize our belief in the effectiveness of technology as a way to communicate the gospel in our age. See, living in a secular age means that all beliefs are contested all the time. And so the Christian faith is, is challenging. I mean, it claims to be actually true and factual. And so it's too easy in the digital world to bump up against something and say, oh, I don't really like this, or it makes me uncomfortable, or it challenges my thinking, and to scroll past it or change the channel. It's easy to, to, to scroll past a presentation of Christian faith that's on a YouTube video or a Facebook post. Anytime it calls for a deeper reflection or especially for repentance, like a change in heart and will and mind and direction. But a person, you and your presence, can't be scrolled past. What I'm trying to say is that physical presence 
is still and will always be necessary for communicating the good news of the love of Jesus. And that's especially uh, true in our distracted secular age. Your presence, your life transformed by God's grace that can't simply be scrolled past so easily. And this is another reason why eating, why taking the time just to have a conversation that goes past the seven-minute marker is so key. I just want you to watch this video because I think it helps pull these pieces together. Let's just check this out for a few minutes. in our lives to be present with others. Surely, making the best of the time means shifting habits, not just for the sake of being less distracted, but actually to use it for love. Time to be present, to be with, for the sake of a hungry world, a world that's hungry for more than just food, but hungry for connection, for hope, for love, And whether they know it or not, for salvation, for reconnection with God. Christ present in us, if you're a believer, that means that we are to be the place 
where the hungry world finds the welcome of God. And God opens his life to us through his son, Jesus. And then he calls us to his table and says, come and eat for free, Isaiah 55 says. He calls us to the table to receive his grace and we meet with him and then he transforms us to be table people. People who are open to those around us. I'm going to call those who are going to help us serve at the table. We read this in Isaiah 25. A picture of what's coming in the future. The, uh, Isaiah's writing of a future time and here's what it says. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. But look at the heart of the banquet next. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the people's disgrace from all the earth. Which mountain is this? He's talking about the mount where Jesus gives his life for you and I. Where his life is broken apart to put ours back together. How does he swallow up death forever? Through his death and his resurrection, Jesus makes a new start. And it ends in a party. It's a banquet. That's how you celebrate it. This is what Jesus speaks of when he meets with his disciples the night before he goes to cross to the cross. He says his life will break, but there will be forgiveness and ultimate healing. So he takes bread and he breaks it and he hands it out and he says, this is my body, which is broken apart for you. And he takes the wine and he says, this is my blood that's shed for you. And it was. This is Jesus filling full that prophetic word picture of the table of the feast of the Father. So together, as we gather around this table, we are lifting up our thanks to Jesus. And Jesus, we're saying as we pray now, Lord, we humbly receive again. We take this reality into us that you came, you were present with us, and you gave yourself to bring us back in connection with you and others. And Lord, we don't want to waste our time or our energy, but we wanted to use it for your glory and in a way that pictures even this table today. Amen.